Hey everybody, on today's episode we are talking to a good friend of mine, Matt Beal, and we end up talking about some really heavy subjects as we are talking about mental health, and I wanted to give a trigger and content warning, we do talk about rape and sexual abuse, so please do what you need to do in order to keep safe mentally and emotionally. Thanks for listening in, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Dude, I'm, I'm so, so, so glad um, you gave me a call like a week ago listening to the mental health episodes that we have kind of been diving into. And I'm really, really, honestly, I'm really glad that you called me because I I wanted to continue this conversation uh, with Ashlyn. Uh, with, I mean, the whole idea of mental health is is really, it's this beautiful concept, but also something that is not tackled in broad perspectives um, that I really wanted to do with Ashlyn. I wanted to talk just me and him, which we had a great conversation. Um, yeah. And then we had a mental health advocate on as well. And uh, what was his name again? Blake Karinovic. And, oh, yeah. and he was a very dynamic individual. He spoke, I mean, he was a, uh, an advocate and a motivational speaker. I'm sure anyone that listened to that episode is aware of his uh, motivation. And uh, it was very dynamic, very great episode. And then um, uh, obviously talking to you and your professional experience. And I'm also lining up uh, somebody on the somatic uh, therapy side of, uh, and so like the idea here is um, there's no one single linear path to finding mental, uh, to finding therapy, to find the path to, to yourself is what me and Ashlyn have been calling it. Like therapy and is, is the journey of self, like finding the deep, rooted buried parts of who you are and uncovering those and and it's the it's the journey of self and there's no one path to that for every single human on this planet um and so the idea that we're bringing a lot of different experiences a lot of different professionals on this podcast was the whole concept and so i'm so glad that you called me we're like hey i have so much to say and i was like yes yes i forgot that i want more people <laughs> on my podcast about this and it's perfect so i'm so glad it worked out worked out uh yeah, thank you thank exciting. you for coming on man there's also no and... one oh go ahead matt no please uh just that there's no one uh i don't know there's no one as exciting to talk to for me i mean we have so much shared history yeah um and that's one cool thing about this episode is that um mark and i every week we talk about our shared history we get to joke and we have many many years together um but matt now there's another person in this episode where we, we have a bunch of shared history with you. We have years of, uh -huh. you know, time that we've spent with you. And now you're doing something very different from what you did then. Um, I'm interested to dive into that and talk about how you got, you know, from where you were when you were directly in Mark and I's life mm -hmm. to what you're doing today and, and what that transition looked like. But um, yeah, we're just really happy you're here. And I'm, I'm sorry I interrupted you. I love you guys so much. And uh, I'm miss you like I do so many other people from Florida still, you know, but love you guys and miss you guys. So it's a great honor. I mean, to be us here, more honestly. than them, obviously. Oh yeah. yeah I mean, you the, by far the most for sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was listening to those episodes and, and, and found myself being like, Oh, Oh, I wish I could chime in right here. Oh, I can't, I can't say anything because I'm not on the podcast right now. So yeah, just a quick call to Mark and I'm glad that worked out. 
Well, can you share a little bit about your uh, your professional experience, who you are? For the for the listeners that did not listen in on episode three, Epistemology, back in 2018, like, <laughs> who are you? What do you do? Where are you at now? Um, yeah. So I'm Matthew Beal, Matt, I go by Matt, and I met Mark and Ashlyn in Florida when we were all together in ministry there at Master's Commission in Fort Myers. And I was I was kind of a, a, among the leadership. I was on staff at that point. And um, <clears throat> I was there for 10 years, I think, total. And during that time, I, I continually realized, I was reminded often that I needed more training in mental health to be able to be as effective in discipleship as I wanted to be. And that, that recognition, like when we had um, a student, you know, do some suicidal ideation and, and cut a little bit in a, in a suicidal way, um, people that were dealing with, with depression and, and anxiety and um, borderline personality disorder is one that I look back on now and think, oh, yeah, we had, we had some issues with that that caused some trouble. And I didn't know even the word, the term back in those days, but now I can rec- look back and recognize, oh, yeah, we, we were getting issues that we just didn't know how to handle at all and we were we were trying to minister to to trauma that we had no idea what we were doing and i was aware i was consciously aware that we were attempting to do things that were way over our head like when we did a human video that actually had like a a gang rape scene and i'm almost ashamed to even say that right now you know like that we would depict something that traumatic and and have no idea how to handle what we were depicting in a um, high school with a bunch of kids and then say hey come hang out with us later and we'll, yeah you know recruit you like yeah. that i think it's right. admirable that we were trying to tackle these huge yeah. issues but we weren't we weren't qualified and we should have known better and i knew somewhere deep down i knew like this is over our heads but i i don't know what to make of that you know um and, and so I decided, well, I've got to go to seminary and, and I'm going to get a theological degree and I'm going to get a, a counseling degree. And I never really anticipated becoming a professional counselor. I just wanted the training to, to understand how people worked and, and what that journey of self that, or as the mental health community would talk about it, the journey of, of ourselves as biopsychosocial beings or biopsychosocial spiritual beings uh, is often the way people think of it now. That the self is a inherently biopsychosocial and spiritual. Um, so that journey of self, I wanted to understand it better and and know how to help people in that journey because it's so intrinsically related to our faith journey and our faith communities. Um, and, and and our faith communities are at a loss. At, at, they're deeply set back when they try to handle things that they're not equipped for. Um or when they they don't know how to even you know recognize something and, and refer to a care p- provider who who does know how to take care of it. How long and, was it, Matt, uh, th- that you started realizing? How long was it after you had left Florida and in your professional training did you start realizing that it was possible that the work that you were doing that we had been involved in down in Florida may have been? Uh, I, I talk about. Often I talk about impact versus intent. Like I, our our intention was good. It was really good. I mean, a lot of the intentions I had in ministry was good, but I mean, often our impact was very poor. Um, and you talk about some of these 
I mean, like a scene that you depicted, like the gang rape scene in a human video where it was supposed to be for good. Um, I mean, we have no idea the impact that had. Like, how long was it after you left Florida to before you started realizing that possibly the impact that we had may have been equally, maybe as harmful or if not more as beneficial in those moments? Yeah, and a word I would use is that impact was probably highly ambiguous and and very complex. Um, because for some people that may have been fine, encouraging, whatever. Uh, for others, that might have been deeply, deeply triggering. Um, it, it, for somebody who had been through something like that or any experience of, of rape or sexual assault, I, I can, it's hard to imagine that that was helpful in any way. Yeah. And since at least one in four women have experienced some form of sexual assault, I'd say that ambiguity is, is a troubling sort of ambiguity, you know, yeah. in terms of its impact. Um, but it was, it was probably, it was probably a, a, at least, you know, a, a year, a couple of years in before I started thinking about that, partly because I wasn't doing a whole lot of reflecting on master's commission for the first couple of years of, of work because I was just so busy, <laughs> you know, diving into coursework and internships and getting married and moving from Massachusetts to Texas. Um, it was a insanely busy uh, time of my life, not exactly prime ground for my own mental health in, in many ways. Um, but, we, you know, I struggled through that myself and um, dealt with my own issues as I was trying to learn how to deal, help others deal with theirs. Um, oh, but I wanted to finish a thought that I started earlier, and that's that my primary goal in in going to seminary was theological education. And that was another thing I recognized I deeply needed. Uh, we weren't I mean, I, I was thought of as one of the most knowledgeable, theologically minded people in that program. And I had no idea what the heck was going on. <laughs> you know, I knew the Bible pretty well and memorized a ton of it. But um, but I, I had no, no theological, uh, my, my theological outlook was not informed by actual scholarship. It was informed just by knowing knowing the Bible as if that's, you know, enough. And, and for, for many people that maybe that is enough, right? For most people in, in the congregation, that's, that's more than enough. Um, but for me, I recognized that lack and wanted to, to dive deeply in, like we say, this Trinity thing that three or one, I'm like, oh, help me understand that. Like, let's dive into that. We talk with issues like suffering and okay, we're, supposedly God is good and suffering exists and it's a mystery how we reconcile those, but okay, I want to dive in. I want to get my hands dirty with that stuff. Um, Mark, you used an analogy, I think, to, um, to the sciences, right? It's like talking about astronomy and saying, oh yeah, there's these things called black holes, but you can study that at the doctoral level and it's an entirely different experience than if you study it yeah. at the high school or bachelor's level. Yeah. Right. I mean, absolutely night and day difference in many ways. Or like my level, which is watching interstellar nice. <laughs> like 10 times. Yes. It's such a great movie. <laughs> so good. I love black holes for some, I mean, it's just fascinating stuff. Wormholes. I stuck don't, with that, but... don't get me started, Matt. Don't, <laughs> <laughs> we don't know where but that's I wanted, go. I wanted that. I, I knew at some level I wanted that deeper look at it, a deeper dive. And so right away in seminary, actually, I, I recognized that there was a passion for doctoral studies. And so, um, 
while we were living in Waco, my wife and I, she was doing her doctorate there in Old Testament studies. And I was working as a therapist in what's called outpatient um, uh, crisis care. And so I would help people. I would do two different things. One, I would help people who were in, in actual crisis, right? They're in the emergency room because of a mental health problem, or they're, they're in the community and the police are, are on scene trying to help people, um, or, or family calls us on, on our hotline because they're concerned that somebody might be in an in, in imminent danger to themselves or others. And so I go on scene and, and help take care of them. The other thing I, I would do is help people who are transitioning out of an inpatient hospital setting. So if a psychiatrist or a psychologist has said they're not safe, they need to go to the state hospital uh, to be taken care of, to, to get better so that they can be safe in their own setting. I would help them when they're released from that setting and help them get back into the community. I would drive people around. I'd help them apply for jobs. It was kind of a social worker function in, in many ways. I would, I would, you know, help them get to the social security office and navigate the insane maze that is trying to get benefits, you know, for, for disability. Um, and, and as I was doing that, I'm working toward full licensure and getting supervision for, um, you know, for more individual approaches to therapy and family therapy, marital therapy, that sort of thing. And so then I got licensed after a couple of years. And then I transitioned from from that crisis-oriented work to uh, just doing individual therapy. So I would sit in my office with with people who were part of our agency who had qualified for this local mental health service and, uh, and, and provide them with therapy. And all of those people had major mental health disorders. So they all had either major depression, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, or bipolar disorder, in addition to whatever else they might have been dealing with, like borderline personality disorder, anxiety, those kind of things. When you did that work, it, like in an emergency situation or in a crisis situation, I'm sorry if, if I'm asking you to repeat this, I didn't hear, were you employed by the state or were you like in a, a private agency? Like who actually employed you and like dispatched you into these situations? Yeah, it was, it, in my case, it was, uh, it's called the local mental health authority. And so it's, I believe state money allocated um, to a local agency that um, then provides the service. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a state employee or a federal employee, but the, the money came from, I believe, the state, and it was required services. So the state, I, I, maybe even by federal law, although I'm, I'm speaking a little out of my depth here, um, there are certain services that are required that, that the state provide. And so that was one of them is this mental health crisis service. <clears throat> and now I'm in North Carolina. I don't work in that, that area anymore, but I, I know the, like there is the same kind of agency here as well. So what's interesting and this, this is probably a little bit off topic, might not be off topic at all. Um, when you're describing what you did in that capacity as a, as a crisis mental health advocate, worker, therapist, it sounds to me like what you're describing is what, um, um, again, this, this may seem left field. I hope not. Um, like when the defund the police movement kind of started and a lot of the conversation was around, and I don't think it necessarily meant abolish the police. I think a lot of the conversation was let's, let's reallocate money from, people with guns and armor into 
exactly what you did, right? People who are who are working on the front lines of crises and emergencies and mental health. Um, is that, does that sound right? Is that like, so is someone in that position, you know, is that the right idea that we're, um, again? Yeah, I would say absolutely. That's, that's an important part of the bigger picture. Other aspects of it would be, you know, education, housing, stability, um, you know, this array of, of human needs that, that aren't getting met in many cases and they foster violence and crime and they foster this this vicious cycle of over-policing, uh, race, racially biased over-policing that, that deeply damages communities and that then affects, you know, education and housing and employment and all these other things in this, this you know, really vicious feedback cycle that, that can only get worse unless there's some radical intervention. And part of that would be crisis mental health services instead of going in guns a-blazing go in compassion blazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, you're hurting. We can, we would love to help you, you know, that kind of thing. And then, and some people don't want help. Um, and we would determine the line between you, you can deny help because you're not an imminent danger to yourself. We wish you would get help and we'll always be here for you, but you're, you're capable of denying that right now. And the, then the other side of the line is, you don't have the right anymore. You're dangerous enough to yourself or to others that you, you don't actually have the right to, to decline help. So you, you have to get help. Mm. And then if, if necessary, the police could help intervene to make sure they do, like you, even using physical force to make sure people get into a safer situation, um, like a state hospital. Or um, we, had a, we had sort of a mid-level um, inpatient of it. We had a 24-hour observation room um, that would that would be staffed full time, and um, we also had a, like a one-week sort of voluntary inpatient setting that people could stay in, and then we could send people to the state hospital as well. So, half the reason why this conversation has been on my mind um, is Ashlyn. After I talked to uh, Ash. We, he kind of came up with this idea. Well, not an idea. He kind of came up with this, uh, this question in his brain about, I mean, and I, I don't want to speak for you, Ashlyn, maybe, maybe you can speak a little bit more to this, but he brought up an incredible point about a, this idea that through the pandemic, we all, not just in the U S or in Michigan, but in the entire world, we all collectively have in some degree lost community and nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking about the trauma that surrounds. And I think, Ash, I think you're going to go into a lot more that is involved in that conversation. But this idea, I mean, we are social creatures at the core of who we are. We are designed, intricately designed to have social interactions built into the fabric of who we are as humans. And this pandemic came and uprooted that idea and they told us to lock down and a lot of us lost community overnight mm-hmm. and nobody's talking about the mental health capacity of losing community in that in that sense and it's been about 2 years now like we're approaching 2 years since the start of the pandemic since i mean we are here we are february 6th and we we locked down march 13th in michigan 
in 2020, we're approaching two years where we overnight just, I locked myself in the basement of, uh, I was a roommate, like of my roommate's house and I stayed there for a month and I was a part of a gym and I was a part of like so many different micro communities that I lost overnight and nobody's talking about the, the trauma that is revolving around losing a community, not just on a small sense, but on a global scale and how that could possibly play into our mental health capacity now. So, yeah, Yeah, that's that's so important. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that, um, yeah, Mark and I's conversation the other night basically amounted to, Hey, Matt Beal's excited to be on the podcast and he, he's a mental health <laughs> therapist and counselor. And I had no idea, to be honest, Matt, I've known you and loved you for a long time, but these last like 15 years, I just thought you were, I thought you were a monk, like studying <laughs> to be a doc, Dr. Monk, Matt. I honestly just thought it was, I didn't know that your specialty was around uh, therapy. I had no idea. Yeah. That's great. Um, I'm not doctor, surprised. I'm doing by a doctorate in, in practical theology, and there can be definitely a sort of monkish yeah. tendency <laughs> to, you know, to get through coursework. Sometimes you get just got to do your own little lockdown, and then that might be, you know, a year to five years, depending on how you go about it. But I just, yeah, I didn't know <laughs> that your specialty was around therapy and counseling. Yeah. That that wasn't on my radar. Um, but again, I'm not surprised at all by it. Just because of the person you are and that of course whatever you do you're going to lean toward serving people and helping people and and developing and healing people so it wasn't surprised to hear it but when mark mark kind of said you know what where should we steer a conversation with matt beal that being kind of his specialty and what has been on my mind um is exactly that is that um i think for one, if you compare our awareness level as a society today to our awareness level 10 or 15 years ago, people I don't think were talking as much about anxiety and mental health issues. I think there was much more of a stigma if you talked about mm-hmm. someone has mental health problems that's very scary. It's, oh no, you know, it's something yeah. that you don't want, that you don't want to deal with. And I feel like today the awareness level is drastically different that people yeah. talk about it with a tone that is drastically different. Um, I think people are much more open and able, you know, to, uh, discover things about themselves willing to this, you know, we live in a society today that's just very different than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. And said, I remember starting to hear people say things like just in casual conversation, sort of in passing, I remember the phrase like, Oh yeah, I was talking to my therapist the other day about that and and then you just carry on. And I remember hearing that phrase and noticing it more and more and being like, "Oh, that's refreshing. That's that's such a different perspective than like, well, I have I have a therapist. Is that okay?" you know, <laughs> kind of tender footing around on it on that mm-hmm. issue. It was like embar- it was embarrassing. Yeah. And to some people maybe it still is. Um so, you know, that that being kind of the setup and what's on my mind, I think um, I'm really concerned about how families and people and individuals 
are dealing with this lack of community. Not everyone has a lack of community. Like in my own family, um, it, it varies drastically, right? You know, before the pandemic, um, you know, if I take a snapshot of that, you know, my wife, who's traditionally been a stay at home wife since we've had little kids, um, she's always had groups of friends, you know, and done groups where they go hiking and they do, you know, there's always active things happening all the time with her. Um, and today, two years into the pandemic, it's a very different story. I still go to work every day. My oldest son goes to school every day. You know, we're around people, we're engaging with people. Um, she's not, you know, she's, she's essentially home still. And, you know, there's this ebb and flow to the fear level of the pandemic and um, what you're, you know, it's like, we're constantly trying to figure out what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to still stay home because the cases are rising and we want to be careful and we have these little kids and we, you know, we're around their grandparents and that, you know, there's this constant, like you're, you have to always be um, aware and risk managing all the time you know, and that feeds into, you know, should I have a play date? Should I take my baby? Should I meet people through these Facebook groups and take my baby out and go to play dates or should I not? Because everyone's always getting sick. (laughs) Everyone's always coming down with coronavirus. And And we're approaching 1 million deaths in our country. Yeah. Breached 900,000. I mean, I, I remember talking with my mother early in the pandemic and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we might hit a hundred thousand. And she was like, I don't know. That seems, that seems a bit much. And then we hit a hundred thousand and now we're half, you know, half a million, 900,000 deaths. And I've already seen pastoral uh, people from, you know, my, my former way of life minimize that and say, well, the chances are still so low. We've had 900,000 people die that wouldn't have died mm-hmm. if they, if there, if it weren't for coronavirus. So it's a big deal on, on, and, and what you're talking about is, is also a big deal, right? The, this, the sense of seclusion, isolation, loss of, of community, loss of um, connection, human connection. That's also a huge deal. And, and yeah, certainly at, there are no easy answers. <laughs> at first it was, it was kind of novel. It was like, yeah. Oh, this is fun. This is this is really going to happen. Okay, yeah. schools are going to close. Okay, we're going like to have week, work month. from home, <laughs> and we're going to meet. You know, we're going to have Zoom calls, and we're going to, you know, it was like silly. It was it was like uh, I can't remember his name. The guy who does Olaf's voice in Frozen <laughs> does it. You know, he's going to start a new YouTube show with different celebrities from the eighties, or you know, it was yeah. like. All well, this, it was all it was exciting. Kind of, it was new. Yeah. It was you know like oh it's, we're we're adults and we're staying home on snow days. You know it had yeah. that feel to it. That's what it felt yeah. like, and it was no big deal. And then as time went on, like just in you know here's, again here's just a snapshot of the Blythe family's life. You know this happens. We're all kind of having fun with it. I set up David's bike on boots up in the living room and put YouTube on with a GoPro, <laughs> like a mountain bike. So he was like mountain biking in the living room. We oh, did nice. stuff like that all the, you know, we're just That's having really fun. Like and that. then, you know, we, we, uh, had a new baby in the middle of it. Um, and we moved to a new town and now it's just like, we're alone, you know, everything's alone. All the, you know, it's, it's the fun of it wore off 
you know, a year ago. And, and now it is just, it's dragging on. We're still, you know, very, very aware and conscious and again, risk managing of like, who do you spend time with when and where and how, and, you know, all of the, you know, has everyone been tested? Who's been vaccinated? Who's, you know, it's like you have to ask all these questions and it makes it awkward and uncomfortable. And, um, so I guess all of that to say, you know, I'm concerned about how do we manage mental health when you have that lack of community around? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you work that? Because it's, it's very difficult. Um, I don't want to speak for my wife. It's more difficult for her, I'm sure, because I, like I said, I go to work every day. I still, you know, I'm around other humans and other adults and, um, you know, she doesn't have that kind of outlet. So, well, I think what you're talking about also, Ashlyn, is, um, and Mal, you, you respond here uh, to what Ashlyn was asking, but this isn't trauma like, uh, you know, my mom passed, and that was a big single event that has a timestamp. This, what you're talking about, is this slow chipping away, almost like, in a sense, like the way that climate change is slowly just changing, but it's it's a crisis. Mm-hmm. And and no one's really talking about the slow tumultuous trauma of losing community through the pandemic. So, yeah. So I'm going to start my response by poking fun at you guys. <laughs> Cause one of the things that I've heard, um, Mark, you've just said this a couple of times, nobody's talking about. And, and it kind of cracks me up in a way because I've, I've spent talking the last couple of years talking about little else and I'm around people that talk about that constantly. So I'm kind of like, nobody, I thought everybody was talking about that. Um, and, and one of the reasons that, that particularly cracks me up, I'm trying to think of how I was connecting this in my brain a second ago. Um, it, because I'm in the mental health field, that's been a, a, a source of primary attention over the last couple of years. And I, I've worked with my clients on that a great deal. Almost every single client, That's that was one of of several kind of central themes is coping with the pandemic and the stress of it and the the seclusion of it and the the struggle and the fear of it the anxiety of it um and the reason i want to poke fun at you guys for that is because um throughout the this the two episodes on mental health i'm like wait neither of these guys go to a counselor what the hell (laughs) you want to talk about mental health and you don't go and your mental health advocate guy that comes on doesn't see a therapist i'm like what (laughs) come on guys don't see a therapist what are you talking about i thought this was my therapy really (laughs) it's not i I promise you it's not (laughs) i've seen a therapist on and off for years and uh, that's good okay good yeah grouping you in wrongfully then oh, i never man. have rightfully. if you listen to the the first episode we did the genesis of that was i was having a panic attack and i mm-hmm. called mark and i said hey let's let's do it instead of you know me not doing anything to cope with this like i usually do let's record an episode where i openly talk about it and yeah. you know and maybe that begins something and um I wish I, think, I, I thought it was super brave. I had a ton of respect for you doing that. And um, that's so valuable just to be open about your experience. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so thank valuable. you. That I, certainly, I admitted in the episode and and believe that I should schedule that appointment and will probably schedule that appointment. Nice. So thank you for laughing at me and and uh, <laughs> giving me further so, motivation to schedule nice. that appointment. One one easy resource. Uh, it's easy to access. It's still a hard decision to make though. To like whittle down the the list of therapists and who do I see and pulling the trigger on that. It takes some energy and it takes some courage. Um, it's stepping out into the unknown. And for many people, it's also financially challenging. And so to to go ahead and go to a therapist is a big deal, right? And compounded by the fact that the people that need the mental health care most are challenged by the very mental health problems that they're facing uh, in ways that makes it more difficult to reach out to a therapist, right? I mean, if you're, if you have major depression, for instance, it's hard enough to lift your hand up out of, or to, or to roll out of bed, let alone schedule something and then or wrangle with insurance and budgets and uh, get in a car and drive there and face the unknown. It's really hard to get the help you need when you need that kind of help. <laughs> it's a lot easier when, you're feeling great and you're just like, hey, I just want to feel even better. You know, this is awesome. I'm going to yeah. just kind of deep dive into myself, you know, eat, pray, love crap. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I um, love that book. How, do you, I've never read it. I've, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, so where, if somebody were to come to me, what advice would you give to somebody like me on how to, push them. I mean, if they, if they were to come to me, like Ashlyn comes to me and he's like, Hey, um, you know, this, this pandemic is, is stressful. I'm losing community. I don't know what to do. Like one, like what would you instruct somebody like me and how to respond to keep them in a safe place, knowing that I'm not knowledgeable in a professional sense? And two, what, what would you say to that person as a professional? I'll start with number two then. Um, First, I would say, wow, that's really that's really cool that you reached out to me. Thank you so much for like, trusting me with that. Um, what's going on? And I would I would want to listen to them first of all, and just kind of try to understand what they're going through and what that's like for them. Um, and I want to be careful to separate this response or my answer to your question from what I would do as a therapist with somebody who is my client seeking therapy. Um, but I would, I would encourage them to look into a resource like um, psychologytoday.com is is a, a great resource that lists therapists and you can you can filter by location and price and insurance companies what insurance they take and gender if you want to you know if you prefer uh, male female uh, you know transgender I, I think that you can filter by at least male and female I'm not sure if you can filter by other other sorts of genders I'm not sure Um it's worth looking into, though. But you can you can filter certainly filter by by people who are who are abs are comfortable working with say transgender clients or or lesbian, gay, you know, bisexual, queer clients, all that stuff. Um, versus those that that aren't so willing to do that. You can filter religious affiliation or a religious um, approach to to therapy or or eliminate that out. You know, there's lots of filters so you can kind of find somebody that you think you might be comfortable with. Um, it, a, so a lot of people have a, a photo 
on a blurb up there. Most people do. Some people have short videos introducing themselves. So you can kind of look through and be like, oh, that person seems like somebody I'd kind of like to chat with, I guess. Um, they take my insurance. So, okay, I'll give them a call, you know. And then you reach out and you try to schedule something. Um, so that that's one place I would, I would direct people right away. Um, as a therapist, I would also kind of do a brief sort of crisis evaluation. Like, have you thought about hurting yourself at all? Is that is that something that that you've been thinking about? Has that occupied any space in your mind? Just to kind of see where they're at there, because um, you know, if the, if it if it is serious and they have been thinking about hurting themselves, then it's something that requires kind of a higher level of intervention. And I might say, okay, have you thought about that like recently? Are you, are you thinking about that now? Okay, if you are thinking about that, how how have you thought about doing that? Have you like made any plans or preparation? You know, and then if they've if they're like, yeah, I've got a gun in my hand. Obviously, we're we're at a whole other level of intervention. But if they're like, yeah, you know, I've I've been thinking about these pills, or um, I don't know where I'm at, and then then maybe I'm I'm saying, okay, well, I'm going to come over and and I'm going to help you walk through psychology today and and we can make a phone call together you know i'm going to really step up beside them like sort of put my arm around them and 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 actually walk through those steps with them but if if they're comfortable and and feel safe then you know hopefully just encourage them in that regard and they can look into it and and then maybe follow it up you know call them back in a couple days or something and say hey how's it going with that anything i can do to help you know for those that don't have any experience in therapy or haven't had the courage to reach out, what, what can they expect if they were to reach out to somebody like you? Like, what does that process feel like? What does it look like? Um, because I mean, for me, I know it's, how do you, how do you trust someone that you've never talked to? How do you, yeah. I mean, I have a hard time opening up to those I love and those I know, how am I possibly able to open up to somebody I've never talked to before? There can be such a range of experiences. For instance, some people find it easier to open up to somebody who's initially kind of a stranger to them because there isn't any sort of relational connection to 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 change by that opening up or a risk there's no relational risk there you know if I, what if i open up and they and they don't want to be my friend anymore that, that's the kind of question that you know that might not come up for a lot of people with a therapist because they're a stranger right um but you're still facing the reality of like i'm i'm sharing my deep heart with somebody who might dislike me or judge me or or contradict me or I don't know what, what's, what's the deal? What's this going to be like? It's such a, such a valid question. And because every therapist is different and a lot of therapists aren't good, (laughs) frankly, you know, there's a lot of bad therapists out there. I hate to admit that. Um, But just statistically, that's, that's one of the things you're dealing with. You know, you're dealing with um, the average therapist is average at therapy by definition you know, and then the the other, the downward half gets worse and worse. The upward half gets better and better. And uh, most therapists rate themselves as above average, which is illogical, right? That's not how averages work. <laughs> and yeah. yet we, we tend to judge ourselves more positively than, than we have a right to. Um, but it really depends on the therapist is what it comes down to. Um, 
you know, a good therapist is going to be open and, and welcoming and absolutely non-judgmental, right? If you get, if you get the sense of being judged, uh, that would be a great time to walk away and just be like, yeah, that, that relationship's not going to work. But if you feel welcomed and invited and, and, uh, drawn in, if you, if, and I tell this to my clients, I tell them this almost explicitly, almost verbatim every, every session, you know, early in the, in the first session, something like the number one thing that works, that, that causes therapy to be helpful rather than uh, a waste of your time or even, even hurtful. The number one factor is that you feel like it's a good connection with your therapist. It's not whether it's a male or female, it's not whether, or, or same gender, different gender, you know, it's not whether they have a, a master's or a PhD, it's not whether they're Freudian or behavioral or, you know, some other, it's not what type of therapy so much, it's just, do you feel like it's a good connection? And it's so radically subjective, but that's the number one thing that makes for good therapy is if the client feels like it's a good connection. And so if you feel like it's a good connection, great, dive in. If, if you don't, it's okay to move on. You know, it's okay to just be like, yeah, I'm not coming back or just don't show up or whatever, do whatever, however you want to do that. Right. You don't need to tell them that necessarily if you're uncomfortable with it, but um, you find somebody that you feel like a good connection with. And if that takes three or four tries, that can be pretty frustrating um, but it's worth it in the end when you do connect with somebody that you feel like a really good connection with. But a good ther- if you connect with a good therapist, and most, th- most therapists have been through rigorous training, thousands of hours of con- client contact and supervision, and, and so most of them are, are going to be worth your time, really, you know, despite how I kind of uh, put a more negative spin on that mm-hmm. at the beginning of this little segment here. Um, how long therapy- should therapy last? Also depends. Yeah. Also depends. I've worked with clients for um, sometimes just a couple of weeks and, and either they, you know, maybe feel like I'm not the best fit. So they move on or they feel like, eh, maybe I didn't need therapy so much after all. And they move on. I've also worked with clients for up to three years, which um, I've had, I had clients relationships with my clients that only ended because I moved. Mm. And that, and that there was, it was continuing to be beneficial for them. Um, I've, as a client myself, I have worked, I've been part of a therapy relationship uh, that has been like, I've been in therapy several times. And um, I think one was just a few months, a couple months. One was uh, a year, give or take. And probably a year and a half was, was about the longest one that I've been with a therapist myself. Hmm. but I I'm into it for me. It is the long haul. I, I want a longer term therapy approach. That's, that's part of just what I feel like I need and want out of therapy. Others for others, they're like, I, I just want to feel better, you know, and then, then I'm good. <laughs> is there a person who you'd say like, like this person doesn't need therapy or is this, is it something like having, having some kind of, um, some kind of therapy consistently or sporadically or periodically, is that something that every human being needs? Do we all need this to deal with something or is it, was there a case where you'd say, no, there's this, there's this stereotypical person who's actually really doing fine. I've never met them personally, (laughs) but like, do you know, like, is that, are there people who just don't need 
that kind of intervention, that kind of, you know, therapeutic relationship. I love the phrase, everybody needs therapy. And it's just, you know, it's a phrase you'll hear commonly enough, I suppose, if you're in the right circles. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, I, I don't know that it's literally true or, or exhaustively true in every particular circumstance, but I think the idea that we all have some deep brokenness and we all have some exploration to do that could be really helpful for us, for which a psychotherapist is ideally qualified <laughs> to help you. I, I think that that rings true almost universally that all of us have, have brokenness. You know, I don't, none of us make it out, you know, unscarred. <laughs> I don't think that exists, you know? So last year, um, Matt, I know, you know, <clears throat> a little about my story and a little about where I've come from in this past year. I would say 2021 was probably, uh, the hardest year of my life. Mm. Um, I lost my mom early on in the year, uh, quickly, um, and kind of unexpectedly, I wasn't able to see her before she passed, which was actually none of my siblings were able to, um, which was was something, thank you. Uh, something I'm still, obviously I'm going to be processing that for a long time, I'm sure. And, uh, there was a window where, and I know, um, me and Ash talked a lot through this. Um, Ashlyn is one of the reasons why I'm still around and he probably doesn't even know that. Um, there was, a, I mean, a window of season that is longer than I care to admit. And it's, it's not like I wanted to kill myself. It was that I just didn't want to exist anymore. And I'm a, I'm a very logical person. I'm not somebody who is going to sit back and plan, you know, how I'm going to die or anything like that. Um, but it, it just, none of it felt like it made sense anymore. And just the mere thought of existence just was exhausting. And I didn't, I mean, it, it, I wasn't looking for an answer because even everyone that I had talked to at the time, it wasn't like I was trying to say, Hey, I need I need someone to save me because I'm going to kill myself. That wasn't what was happening. I was just so exhausted from the mere thought of existence. Um, how, if, if I were to call you at a time like that, um, and if anyone's listening who feels the same way, like they just don't, they don't want to exist because it's just too hard or painful. Like, how would you respond? I think I would first express my gratitude for being trusted with that because that's huge. And but but quickly because that that's more about me than about the person like you who who might be asking, you know, for a listening ear. So I'll just quickly offer my thanks and and let you know, hey, how can I help? Can I can I listen to you? Do you? Do you I, I'd be delighted to come over. Can I come over? Um, what, what do you need right now? Hmm. I'd love to hear your story and just listen. Hmm. And there's a lot of 
a lot of research going into like what what makes therapy work? What is it about therapy that's actually most helpful? I tend toward the the relational answer to that that it's not that the therapist knows certain techniques that they can apply or or behavioral interventions to sort of encourage, right? Oh, well you, you okay, try exercise, try better improving your diet, try getting more sleep, try, um, when you feel really sad or have a a moment, you know, try doing this, right. Those, those can be really helpful sorts of interventions. And I, and I don't want to minimize those at all. Right. Some of those things are really important, but in my perspective, the thing that is most helpful and healing about therapy, right. Which therapy comes from the Greek to heal therapy is, is about healing, and the thing that that he, heals, the most fundamental life-giving thing about therapy is a relationship, a non-judgmental relationship in which you can share yourself openly, be ex- and and be accepted exactly as you are, be heard and understood, mm-hmm. um, and and to be um, explored even. Right, that therapy helps you explore yourself and get to know yourself in that way. I think of therapy kind of like a mirror, right? That the therapist gets to be there reflecting you back to yourself so that you can see yourself in ways that maybe you haven't before. You know, you say that um, completely non judgmental. And, uh, you know, if I can just take a quick second and just share a moment of gratitude for you, Ashlyn. Um, It was a tough season. This podcast, um, for those that know me personally, I'm not a real, I don't share a ton. It's hard for me to share. But those that listen to this podcast, it's interesting because they're like, man, you share so much. And I'm like, I feel safe. When I'm talking with you, Ash, especially, I feel, I feel in a place that is safe where I can be myself and share the parts that are hard I'm thankful for you buddy well man um, thank you for saying that dude I I didn't I never knew that I you know had that kind of impact on you and that I really appreciate you you telling me that I love you I love you very much which uh, you should you shouldn't because I judge you all the time. I judge you constantly. So, <laughs> oh. just kidding. Didn't realize we were gonna have a therapy session here in the yeah. therapy episode. That was a beautiful moment, guys. Man, thanks. Kind of feel like a third. I'm torn between feeling like a third wheel and feeling like holy cow, I got to be here for this. That, that beautiful moment. It's like a threesome of emotion. <laughs> and the pandemic was was really hard for me too it was hard i think maybe in the reverse way is for you mark as you described it i was at the beginning it was really scary and 
radically disruptive to my life because all of a sudden yeah, I'm in the middle of trying to write a dissertation and all of a sudden I'm, I'm like smacked with full-time childcare for a, almost a year and a half, you know? And, um, and my wife was, was teaching. And so her job was less flexible than mine. And I'm, I'm just home trying to work on my dissertation and I managed to make some progress, but my gosh, not nearly enough. I'm so I'm, I'm finishing up year seven in my doctorate right now. And, and I did not want to be doing that. Wow. <laughs> How old were your kids at the time when you, when you hit that full-time childcare phase in the pandemic how, how old six were you and kids? two okay yeah give or take mm. and uh so i wasn't able to make at, for long stretches of time any progress at all then i had to i, I got back into work as a therapist I, I had taken a break during uh coursework in my doctoral studies um and so uh, you know getting back into that also a huge burden on my time. So I just wasn't able to make progress. And that was anxiety provoking and super depressing. And I got more and more depressed, even though at first it was this like fear oriented frustration as, as time wore on and on and on and on and on and on and on, that became really depressing and, um, and deeply agitating, you know, kind of even, even threatening my sense of self and my sense of call in the world. And, um, and so it got to the point about six months ago, it had to be more than that. I can't remember. Anyway, six, let's say six months to a year ago when I realized I, I should probably be on some anti-anxiety medication or something <laughs> like that, I, antidepressant or something. And, and I, I, I debated that for a couple months. So I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to, but you know, if I need it, I'm, I've encouraged others to do that. So I don't know. Am I a hypocrite if I'm not looking into that now? And and I, finally, the the one moment that that convinced me, oh yeah, I need that. I definitely need that. Was when I imagined talking to my my doctor, my primary care physician, about it, and broke down crying as I'm driving along. I'm driving her along mm. in my car, imagining talking to my doctor, and I just break down crying, just weeping in my car, imagining this. And then I I kind of stopped and had a little metacognition moment. I was like, Oh, that probably means I need to have that conversation. <laughs> Good Lord. If that doesn't, then nothing does, you know? So I called her up and, and got myself on, um, um, on a selective serotonin norepinephrine reuptake, reuptake inhibitor. Um, so that, and that's been very helpful. And I, I, after, after a month or so of that, uh, I could feel the music back in my life. You know what I mean? As musicians, I imagine that metaphor might might be meaningful to you. Like when the music just kind of seems like it's sapped out of your body and your mind and your imagination, when you find that like, you haven't been singing to yourself for months, but then to find that re reblossoming, reawakening, like, oh, I sang to myself just now. Oh, that's a good sign. Oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> you know? Well, it's hard to know what you're missing when you can't feel what you're missing and you're like exactly what you were talking about. It's like this, the moment of awakening, the moment where you 
can hear again or you can smell again or you can taste again and you're like oh my gosh i can't believe i if i mean if any of you have lost your sense of smell or taste through the covid you understand once you get it back you're like oh my gosh i forgot what i what i was missing but it's hard if you've been in a state for so long mm-hmm. where you haven't been hearing the music it's hard to even know that you're not hearing it and that's why for a lot of people they're pushed into mental health care not by that slow sort of downhill uh, descent into worse and worse and worse mental health. They're pushed into it by something that finally kind of, you know, the straw that snaps the camel's back, so to speak. As, as you've gotten maybe worse and worse or haven't been taking care of yourself or, or trauma just accruing, whether it's, you know, little things or big things, whether it's, you know, this, this gradual cultural trauma people talk about these days. Um, at some point, you know, then usually for many people, something finally happens and that pushes you over the edge and you're like, I've, I've got it. Okay. I've got to deal with this. And I had that, I had that sort of a moment too, where I realized, um, the, my, my work as a therapist was prohibiting me in particular ways from, from my progress. And so I ended up actually resigning from my position as a therapist so that I could finish my doctorate. Mm. Um, uh, but, but there was, there were issues around the, you know, the work flexibility and inflexibility that, that just kind of pushed me over the edge. And I realized I've got to deal with this in different ways. (laughs) Well, I think exactly what you were talking about me, instead of the, analogy that I used a couple episodes ago that me and Ashlyn were talking about, uh, instead of the camel, the straw breaking the camel's back, we were talking about a boiling point and uh, how often the water from the outside appears like water. Our life appears normal, but everything you consume changes you, whether that's the friends that you have in your life, the food that you're eating, Ashlyn often refers to the hot pockets that he uh, <laughs> absolutely adores. Nice. Um, and, it, you know, it's it, everything you consume changes you in some capacity, in, even in a small capacity. Um, and these consumptions that you have are these energy inputs are either raising the boiling temperature or raising the temperature of the water or lowering. And you might not be realizing it. Uh, but you might be getting closer and closer and closer to a boiling point. Mm-hmm. And it still from the outside just feels and looks like water until one yeah. afternoon. It, like it, Just like in Ashlyn's case, he's sitting there with his children and everything. He's in a safe mm-hmm. place with the, people, with the people he loves the most on this planet. Yeah. And all of a sudden he is at a boiling temperature. And he doesn't understand why. I mean, in, in his logical mind... Um, which is fully understandable. Like you, you're like, I don't, I don't get it, but it was just, you know, in these, in these cases, a lot of us are at 99 degrees Celsius yeah. and it's something so small. Like you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and all of a sudden you are at 100, you are boiling and you're like, why was it that one thing? I didn't think. And then you're having a, a breakdown and then you're screaming and then you turn red or you go into a deep depression and you can't stop it. Um, and I think it's these things that we consume, like we have to continually ask, like, are these things feeding into the health, my mental health, or are they feeding into my boiling? Yeah. And and for the pandemic context that we're talking about or attending to, you know, it seems 
largely here, primarily. It's easy for people to neglect to recognize, to, to just not take into account that stress is cumulative. It's not serial, right? Serial is when this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And you kind of you kind of have a timeline of these blips of events that are stressful happening, right? And it's stressful to start a doctorate. It's stressful to move. It's stressful to have a baby. Good Lord, it's incredibly stressful to have a baby, <laughs> right? And we're, we're men, so we, we, we have the easier part of that. But it, it's incredibly stressful, just the same. Um, but that those stresses don't happen as blips, then the next blip. They happen more vertically, right? You have this stress, and then this stress, and then this stress, and, and there's this, this sort of atmospheric pressure that compounds those things, you know, and maybe, you know, after a while, this, this bottom stressor sort of starts to ease up and, you know, it's not as much of a big deal, but one of the biggest stressors is the death of a loved one. And that's not a straw on any camel's back. That's, that's a, you know, that's the asteroid from, from that new movie. Don't look up. Don't look. Yeah. That's the asteroid from don't look up, you know? Um, and, and, and for Ashlyn, you know, with panic attacks, I don't, I don't know what that might've been, but being in isolation, loss of community, you know, the, the, of having a baby, um, COVID fears, anxieties, a job, you know, maybe you're concerned about your wife being home and, and not having a sense of community, your concern for her, these different stressors just pile up. And there, I actually have a lot of my clients take a stress assessment test that rates you over the last year, how many of these things have you experienced? You know, it gives you a big list of things and you just check off how many of them you've experienced over the last year. And for many people, that's super eye-opening to realize, oh my gosh, my I, over the last year, I have been through all of these things and I have a really high stress score because of it. Oh, it's all with me right now. It's not that the pandemic happened a year ago or that my mother passed away, you know, however long it was, a year and a half ago. It's that I'm dealing here and now with all of those things because I am my history. Hmm. And especially my near history. Hmm. So how do people that have lost, how do we, not, I'll change the question. How do we as a community, how do I begin to shift from, I mean, I've lost community a few times in my life. Uh, when I went through a deep religious, deep deconstruction, yeah. when I lost the community of my church, which was arguably one of the biggest, uh, community losses I've ever had. Um, mm -hmm. and <laughs> still find myself wanting to go back to church. Um, I actually think I told you this on the phone the other day, Matt, um, that, uh, Ash, I don't know if I've told you this. I've gone back to journey church here in Holt. It's like a block away from my house. And, uh, I have some, I would say, uh, philosophical, theological differences, religious, mystical differences with the pastor of the church. Um, and some of the things that he has said, I feel like he doesn't stay in his lane. I always end up critiquing <laughs> the man on the pulpit. 
simply because there's so many thoughts that are going through my brain and I'm literally fact checking in real time everything the person says, uh, no matter where they are, but especially at this at this church. Um, but there's something about the music that pulls me in and I just check out of my logical brain um, that just my body responds to that. And there's something about the community that's there that I just miss so deeply. And um, I find myself going for the worship service and leaving. And I, all of my worship practices are different. I don't worship like I used to, but the music moves me still. And that's a real physiological response. Regardless if it's a construct of manipulation, I don't care. I'm aware of it, but it's still, my body still responds. My soul still hears it. And if there's any bit of good, I'm trying to slurp it up. And, but now I'm stuck between this weird spot of not having a community, especially in church. I don't have much of a community since the pandemic. Like how, how do we shift? Like, what, like, where do we go from here? I guess that's like multi-question, like <laughs> through religion. Because I think actually, Ashton, I think you said at one point in our conversation, you were talking about missing the community and possibly maybe going back to a church, but not wanting. Yeah. So what I think what my position is, um, um, I, <clears throat> I would for sure if my wife to, you know, if she thought, well, I just need a community. I don't care what it is, you know. Okay, well, let's explore that. You know, Matt, for context, we moved into, um, I bought my grandparents' house. What was my grandparents' house um, when I grew up? So it was a multi-generational house that has been in my family for years in my hometown, which I, we never thought we'd move here. We never thought we'd move into this small town in Michigan. Um, and the church here is the one that I worked at as an associate pastor after master's commission. Um, um, so the, my position, Mark, when we were talking was, you know, my biggest fear concern is um, like putting my kids in kids church here. And the thing, like, I don't, I'm, a, I'm afraid of fear being instilled in my kids that I don't, I don't agree with the theology anymore um, behind like the fear of hell. I think that most of it and Matt, you know, this is a whole other conversation that I don't, <laughs> I don't think we even intended to, to go here really, but that, that was kind of where my um, concern is for rejoining that community is putting my kids in that position where they're being told by authority figures that if they don't, do this or say this or believe or think this, that, 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 you know, the alternative is hell, I guess. Well, I think that, that's deeply connected to mental health. Like you, you know, you're instilling essentially a, a, a traumatic, deeply traumatic message uh, in children. We we're all guilty of, of sort of being a part of that for a long mm, time in our lives. 100%. Yeah. But it, it's horribly traumatic, right? That this God, the nature of God is that if you don't meet certain criteria, right, faith, namely, um, but it, if you don't meet the criteria of faith, you're going to be judged on the basis of 
this the sinful nature and you're going to burn in everlasting hellfire because God will put you there. God created hell for that purpose to torture you forever um, unless you have faith. And okay, that that's pretty traumatic, right? Like the story of Noah's Ark, you see nurseries with like animals and the ark and, and everybody's happy. That's a story of, of mass, I mean, we could call it murder, you know, but genocide. attributing it to God, you know, well, I guess genocide in a sense. It wasn't very selective, though. It was just like every living thing. Yeah, it's genocide of humans. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like race aside or something. You know, the human race. Um, it, it's a horribly traumatic story, and so it, we should expect people to have some level of internalized trauma uh, in response to that. Is that that this sort of cumulative? trauma of being warned over and over and over again Hmm. oh gosh i think hell is hell is such a hellish doctrine now really is that's where things started for me in moving away from traditional faith that that i was a part of was i think i felt something i you know again this is way off topic um i felt something i think it's connected yeah probably so I'm working in the church, you know, as a worship pastor, youth pastor, associate pastor, and I'm realizing I am I just feel so different from mm. these people. I'm I'm disconnected in a way like I I you know, I'm glad that Obama's our president. You know, not to get political, but like <laughs> everyone around me criticized me for having that position as a uh-huh. as a worker in the church, you know, as a pastor. Early on I did. <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm in this weird place where, um, I just feel disconnected from people on a, on a lot of different levels, just that we don't think the same. We don't. And then it, what really, really started to break down for me was thinking about hell and thinking about the doctrine of hell and, um, what I was supposed to believe, uh, you know, as someone who was in the process of credentialing in the assemblies of God, there were all these have to like. You would have to actually like avow yourself, sign on the dotted line, you know, that I, you know, and that wasn't just hell. It was, you know, the initial physical evidence of baptism in the Holy spirit and speaking into it was all these different things that I was raising my hand and saying, I'm struggling with this. I have concerns about this. And, you know, I wasn't really allowed to, you know, on some things you can, on some things, the presbyters say, okay, you know, this is, that's fine. You know, have a theology, you know, have a, have a, uh, have questions. That's okay. Have concerns, you know, debate it, kick it around. But on some things, no, you can't, you cannot have questions. You cannot kick it around. And so that's when some of those things, it's so ludicrous how so many of those things are things that the more you study the Bible, the less surety you should have about those things Mm -hmm. like the rapture, like the two, the millennial reign, right. But there's so many things that, that the Bible doesn't actually answer those sort of questions. The more you study it, the less sure you should be about those things. That's pretty much all of existence. <laughs> the more you learn, the less you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so then in all of that, the big Sorry, one. I interrupted your story. No, that's okay. The big one was um, I'm dating Jessica, who had been previously married, um, and was oh, a yeah. terrible situation that she was in. Um, and she thankfully got out of that situation. And years later, her and I are dating. Um, and I was, 
you know, in no uncertain terms told that's, you, you got to pick, you know, you can't, you can't be a, uh, uh, credentialed pastor an ordained pastor and marry this person who Jeez. has a previous marriage. And I just thought how fucking ludicrous, like that is the most insane thing I've ever heard that in no way, um, characterizes this God that I've spent years talking about and describing the character of and counseling people to be closer to. This makes no sense that that would be his position. Give me a break. If you would have killed someone, that's no problem. That's no problem. But big deal. But if your if your current wife was previously married, that's a no go. Yeah. That makes sense. So that really, that really was the thing that made me kind of snap and say, yeah. okay, there's, I don't agree with this anymore. I can't continue here. down this path. I can't devote my life, you know, to this in this way. And from there, you know, then I haven't spent time. I haven't spent hours and hours and hours of my life devoting myself to trying to refigure it out. That's the thing is I've, I've yeah. been in a place of deconstruction. I haven't been in a place of reconstruction, I guess, because my belief is, um, I guess my belief is now centered around love and mm. um, empathy and trying to be a better human. And um, the things that are in front of me that I can, that I see God in are the things like, you know, my family and my children and, you know, raising, raising other humans who are empathetic and who love and who, um, you know, share those, those values, the values of the God that I described and characterized from the pulpit for years, right? Those are the values that I care about. And I just don't, I don't know how the theology and how the scripture and how the, the dogma of it all has a place in, in my life anymore. That being said, that that's why I have concerns about going back, you know, into that, yeah. all of that to say, um, sense. you know, I'm, I'm concerned about putting my kids in a position where they're going to hear authority figures say those things to them and put them yeah. in that position to believe those things. And, um, that's, that's scary. Yeah. That that's really scary. Absolutely. So that's why it we probably be. don't have community today, you know. <laughs> I, I think that's that fear is a sign of health. It really is. Like that should scare rational thinking people who care about love and God and human well being. <laughs> I don't want to expose my children to that. Absolutely. Not. My wife and I actually made the choice that we can't attend the church I grew up in in, in Maine. Um, we, when we were back for summers, you know, visiting my family, we would often go there and we were bothered by it. It's kind of this, um, you know, it's taken a hard neo reformed kind of turn, uh, very strict non-ordination of women policy. Women don't even serve communion or serve as deacons. And, you know, it's, it's just this radical patriarchy and it's deeply, deeply harmful. And, other things go along with that, you know, like hell doctrines of hell and that, that sort of thing. Um, but we finally realized we can't attend here anymore. Even when we're home just for the summer, you know, just for a week, we, we can't be here. I find some hope. And, and for some, it's probably such a meager distant hope that 
you know, I'm not trying to be an apologist for the church, but I do love the church and I'm active in a membership role in, in within my church now. But I'm, I hope that people could find that there are churches where with love and that, that take mental health seriously, that really do embrace questions at any level that really do have allow for some personal liberty to like, you don't have to believe what the pastor believes. Why would, why would that be a rule that you have to believe what they believe, you know? Um, and I find that, in, and, and there are churches that, that are welcoming and, and genuinely affirming of LGBTQ people and communities. Um, not, not this sort of facade of it where it's like, Oh yeah, you're welcome to come and give in the offering plate. But if you want to actually like, do something with the church, then you got to be celibate or something like that. You know, you're welcome um, to come and they quickly to... change. Yeah. <laughs> where where you're fully welcome. Like your gifts are the gifts of God for this community. If you're here in a part of us, the end, <laughs> you know, there are, they're, they're probably rare, in, especially in certain parts of our country. So what's really ironic is um, before we moved here, we lived in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and, <laughs> Kalamazoo. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a funny name. <laughs> Directly next door to us. So we lived in this townhouse. And then there's, you know, the, just just you could literally throw a baseball and hit the parking lot of huh. this place that was a non-religious church. Huh. I don't know why we never went. I think it was a little scary. It was a little weird. And and I that was like, strikes me uh, as weird too. Like it was religious church. So they, it's completely non-religious. They sing pop songs. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There's a there's great. a worship band. This is great. They, they sing. You know, they they they. We found their website, and it should, this is what you can expect. Yeah, word. like they sing. <laughs> you know, the hits of the '80s, '90s, and today. Like you know, nice. they they would sing, <laughs> pick a set list of five pop. You know, just rock pop songs, and they that would, would be you fun. Know, yeah, someone gets <laughs> someone gets up and you know talks about community and goodness and just being you know like just good things. They just come yeah. and share a message of you know being nice to each other um and i and i regret to this day that we never stopped by because we were well into this season you know of where we're at now and um i wish that there was something like that here you know and that we're in this weird desert you know where there's definitely nothing like that but um those things exist and more power to them i hope more people start um you know, just, just communities of goodness. You don't have to use the word church. You know, I, I wish that there was more, more of that in every area where you could just go and be with other people who value being nice to each other and, and, uh, you know, not worry about the, the scary religious things and the being right all the time. You know, I was on a crossover podcast with, uh, a couple of guys named Tom and Pete, they run a podcast about, um, it's called Unraveling with Tom and Pete, and they they kind of work through people that have deconstructed or uh, people that where church no longer works, but they still find themselves either religious or mystical. I'd probably consider myself like a mystic. Um, definitely spirit, like I have a uh, propensity for, a, you know, a high propensity for a spiritualistic mindset. Um that still exists today, even though a lot of those ideological frameworks no longer work um, that used to work. Um, but they were talking about the last question that we talked about that they asked me on the podcast was, 
um, what type of a church would you be interested in attending? And I wish I would have prepared better. Um, I wish I would have known that question was coming because on the spot I answered and it was, uh, it's a, it was, you know, sufficient for the time. And I listened to it. I'm like, that was a good answer. Um, I said, I think I said something like a church that would be relentless in serving the people. Um, and something along the lines of that. But now I think about it, a church that I'd be really interested in going into would be like if they all met and there was just tables and everyone was just eating and drinking and sharing story and nobody was above anyone or below anyone and the doors were just open. I mean, a, a statement that I've shared for a long time is if if you have, if you have been blessed with more, if you've been given an abundance to build your table bigger, mm. not your fences higher. And then I followed it up by saying my table is big enough for everyone. Like that's been a motto of my life. And to start, I mean, a church that I'd be interested in going to is just people that want to share their life together in a very, ta I would go to that church. Like if we're just sitting down and talking and laughing and connecting as human beings were made to do to share our stories and to share the pain that we're going through. And I mean, really what I'm talking about is community, but on a super raw and tangible level, like that is, that's a church I've never heard of. That's a church I would go to today. And we're touching on the issue of ecclesiology, right? The study of the church. What is the church? what should the church be? What can the church be? Those sort of questions. And I love that you, you had landed on community there. Right. And that's Ashland. What I sense from you particularly is this hunger for community, whether that's religious or not, right. Whether, you know, non-religious church uh, with some of the, some of the sort of, you know, manifestations that are similar to church like singing together you know or mark eating eating together having fellowship you know uh, community is such so found foundational to to what church is for me I, the one thing that and my wife and i've used this phrase a lot the one thing we can't get away from um is the singular what we call the singularity of christ right that that this this person of Jesus, this death and resurrection, and the, these teachings, we just can't escape their gravity. And so, so for us, this that community, that ecclesial community, is is something that requires that attention, that attention to the Christ. Um, but but it, community doesn't for everybody, obviously. That's you know pretty clear. But one thing that I find important that I think will resonate with you guys is the, one, the, the main reason that community is so important to us and that we can notice that is that we're created in the image of God and God is community. In the, at least in the Christian faith, I think one of the most beautiful things about the Christian faith is that fundamental reality, right? Behind all of everything, before the big bang, whatever you want to talk about, what ultimate reality is community, right? Creator, Christ, and Spirit, three who are one, one who are three. Fundament ultimately, all of reality is 
community, a community of perfect self-sharing love. And, and we're created in that image, right? And so one of the things that we see uh, here in America is that we have this, we have this odd hyper-individualism, right? This Western uh, society, Western cultural idea that, that self is the ultimate sort of good, right? The, and we see our, our legal policies um, enact this, right? That, that self is the one on trial, not community, even, even though maybe the community is the one that formed the sort of selfhood that could create, could do a criminal act. Um, communities are behind criminal acts often, you know, uh, cultures are behind criminal acts. We talk about like corporate culture, you know, um, that 2008 was the, the awful fruit of, of our collective economic culture. And, but here in the West, we have this, this hyper individualism that says, well, that's the individual ultimately that we're going to look to. And the, the individual is the ultimate responsibility. The individual is this, this radically solid, solitary entity. Um, and, and I think in our response to the, to the pandemic, one of the things we've seen is that, wow, yeah, when we, when we actually act that out, right. in in this sort of approximation of, of significant isolation, it's really hurtful. <laughs> maybe, maybe we are not an Island unto ourselves, you know, maybe, uh, it all kind of all links back to Descartes in a way, Rene Descartes said, I think therefore I am. And, and that's the idea that the self is this sort of isolated thinking machine. But others come along and say, Ubuntu, right? I am because we are. And there's this radical reversal of that, that individualism that says, like Mark, you were, you were alluding to this earlier, that community is fundamental to who we are. We are, we are composed beings, <laughs> composed of and within community. And so you and I are not actually separate. I and we are not actually totally different things. I even think it goes beyond just the, the philosophical ideals that you're talking about, ideas that you're talking about, Matt, that um, if you look into science, you look into consciousness. Yeah. Uh, if you were to take, like, there is good science right now that is indicating that consciousness doesn't exist on a soul level, um, not even within the brain itself, which is an entire another subject, the multi-consciousness <laughs> yeah. that exists within your own brain. But um, if you were to take a person and place them in a room and uh, with absolutely zero contact, and then you were to dim the lights and remove some of their sensory inputs, that their con their level of consciousness begins to blur and then over time begins to fade. And that even their awareness of reality and their perception of reality begins to fade and not altogether completely disappear. And they, they be people uh, become completely psychotic without yeah. human interaction. Um, and it's, it, it started with these, uh, trials in the sixties and they realized it was so inhumane because they were, I mean, they were killing people like, like people would never recover from these, uh, psychosocial experiments of, 
isolation. Yeah. Um, Which is what, thankfully why there's there's a lot of attention to the the radical inhumanity of of that as a punishment within prison. Yeah. So um, I mean, you take you take people. We need so a not, lot more attention to that. <laughs> so not not only on a philosophical level, but on a conscious level, you remove community. Yeah. You're removing reality. You're removing consciousness. Um, Paul Ricoeur talks about, in, in a sense, we are we are interwoven narratives, right? I am my narrative in a sense, but my narrative is interwoven with every other narrative. I, I don't have my own narrative as some independent thing. It's my narrative contains your narrative. My your narrative contains mine. Mm. But Ashley, radical I, interdependence. <laughs> you know, I I think I think of all of the really poor experiences and the the in a sense the trauma that we experienced through Masters Commission. Um, one of the great things that Masters Commission did was create a community like none I've ever seen, and yeah, nothing to to date has touched that. I mean, even with all the trauma that's come from it. So I thought about that recently. Um, Matt, I think you engaged with um, Matt Nag's post on Facebook about a podcast that was comparing, you know, Master's Commission to uh, to cults. It was basically a cult, cult podcast going through different cults, and then they had a Master's Commission episode. And I listened to that episode. I don't know. I don't know if I listened you did to the whole not. thing, too. Yeah. Me, too. Yeah, I listened to the whole thing. And for one, it was striking the you know things that i haven't thought of in many years and things that you know light bulbs went off that went oh i defended that you know <laughs> like i did not <laughs> there, you know i'm not saying masters commissions i'm not taking that position that masters commission is a cult or that we were in a right. cult but there were definitely elements that i would have defended and said nah it's just that we're you know it's it's the marines of you know, Christianity. That's what this, you know, this is for the extreme people that want this extremeness and, and endure this so that you can, you know, I would have come up with all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that I thought of as I was listening to that at some point, um, I forgot his name started with an R the subject of the podcast, but he, he mentioned like leaving after his first year and how, how strange, like it's so, it was so emotional leaving the program after the first year and driving home. I got in my geo Metro and drove oh, my little man. geo Metro back to Michigan. <laughs> and I bawled for hours because I was so alone and I hadn't been alone for nine months. I hadn't been alone once, for you know, a minute. It was so strange that, you know, I remember just feeling so, so empty and alone, you know, and I'm leaving this thing behind and, I couldn't, you know, a week before I couldn't wait to go home. I couldn't wait to have some freedom, you know, from this. It was like, I'm ready to just get out of here for a little while and, you know, experience Smoke some the real weed. world. Exactly. <laughs> have some sex, you know, mistake. <laughs> I'm, you know, obviously joking, but the, the feeling was so intense of like, I've just intense emotion leaving that place and that, you know, cause it was such a deep community that, you know, for yeah. better or worse, we could criticize different parts of it and also praise different parts of it all day long. But yeah. that was intense. That feeling of that community is now gone. And, yeah. you know, it was so deeply ingrained in us, 
you know, for so long to be around these people, you eat together, you sleep together, you work very hard, you know, at different things together. Um, you cry, you pour your heart out, you, you put it all on the table. Um, and then you're just gone and it's over, you know, graduation happens, you party all night with, and then you're gone. And that was such a weird feeling driving away. So I guess, Matt, my question to you would be, how do you, how do we create a community with that type of bond without creating the trauma that it comes along with it? Because I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard of a community with a strong bonds. Like, I mean, every time like you get, you know, Narcos, the, the show that reflects those that were actually in a cult, but they would probably say the same, that their community like there's, there's nothing like that community. So how do you create yeah. a community like that, but not create the trauma that's associated to where when you exit, because we've all exited that community knowing there was trauma involved and now missing the community, but not knowing what to do. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that I have great answers to that. One, one answer that comes to mind is sort of a, a precondition maybe for that sort of a community to grow would be grieving the loss of community. Grieving either what's been lost or what is not. Because we, I think we're recognizing here that, you know, especially in the pandemic, pandemic context, community has suffered. And because of that, we have suffered because we are communal beings. And there's grief there that needs to be grieved. And we're not a people that's very, that are very good at grief as a culture. You know, we, we shunt death away to the professionals and, you know, for the first time in history, you know, most of us will probably live most of our lives without seeing or witnessing personally death. And, and that's very strange within human history. That's alien. Yeah. But so we're not, we're not very good at grieving. And I think that lo- grieving that loss of community is, is pretty important. <laughs> um, letting ourselves be deeply sad and acknowledge that it's, we're, we're deeply wounded. I think that maybe that's like, you know, letting a field rest for a while before you try to plant something else and then tilling up the soil and taking care of the soil before you try to, you know, shift from one type of pro, like produce to another. I don't know. I'm not a very, not a very agricultural person, but that analogy comes to mind. And then, gosh, that's such a good question. I feel like my brain is like just about exploding with a possibilities and b the unknown. How do we create that community? Is it even possible to create that community aside from the risk of the traumas within the community? No, not definitely not possible to com- create that community without risk. Then is it worth it? Heck no. Heck yes. It, it, is it worth taking the chance of trauma for the engagement of community or should we just venture semi alone the rest of our lives? And where is that balance? Maybe, maybe for some it would be worth it, you know, the Alaskan hermit or something like that. But um, <laughs> for most of us, that's going to be essential. 
and and we'll never create ideal communities. You know, this is to refuse anything but the utopic ideal. It would be would be really harmful, you know, and and just naive. Because anytime anytime you love, you're risking, and anytime you love, you're certainly going to be hurt. And this isn't surprising to us at this sort of romantic one-on-one level, but it's certainly true in, at the community level as well. We're, we're going to be hurt, you know. If we're together, we're going to be hurt. If we're that can be true of a church or a local community. That can be true of a society, you know, nation state level. Um, anytime we order our togetherness, there's, there's going to be hurt that needs attending to. Um, the, the call would be to make damn sure you're attending to it. You know, hmm. good Lord, you better attend to it. Hmm. I feel like I to get political a little bit, right? Trump uh, did this whole like trauma, radical trauma at the border of separating families. Um, and I can't say that Biden's done a great job attending to that yet. No, he hasn't. <laughs> I mean, th- those, those wounds that, that our Southern neighbors endured at our hands there, it's hard to fathom. I, I know I can't fathom it. They're not even close. Um, but if we're going to be a humane society, we damn well better attend to that, you know? And if we're going to be life-giving churches that that actually promote human flourishing, we've got to attend to the ways that our historic ecclesial lives have damaged people and the way that they might still be damaging people and attend to that. I don't think, I think if we start from the ground up, if we imagine starting from the ground up and creating some kind of an ideal, I think what we're going to end up doing is is more or less reproducing the same phenomenon again and again. Um, it's, it's, this, it's the same sort of utopic idea of like, this city's so boring that my town is so boring. I can't wait to get out of here. And then you go somewhere else. Oh, and lo and behold, that's boring too. Well, <clears throat> it's not because the city's boring. It's because you're boring, you know? <laughs> so all, stop being so boring. Do something. <laughs> in all the history that's happened, I mean, William Penn uh, came and settled into the Northeast, to which is now known as Pennsylvania, yeah, yeah. for his entire cause was to build a utopia. Yeah in this new world and yeah. it's now it's just fucking Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I love the vision. Like I think we need to attend to the vision of how can we move toward what I would describe as the kingdom of God, right? The, the or the kingdom of God. I, I love the ways that feminists wrestle with words right, and wrangle words into new ways, right? The queendom of God, um, whatever you want to call it. What is what is this utopia? How could we move in that direction by attending to the wounds and, and bringing healing, by actually welcoming and allowing and even fostering questions that don't lead to dogmatic answers, but probably lead to more questions and the the embrace of mystery? Maybe I don't know. Um, well, hmm. I think that this conversation is. Uh... <laughs> 
has been gone in a direction I don't think any of us were expecting. Um, but it's it's organic. I always encourage organic yeah. conversation. Um, Matt, it's just fantastic to see your face, buddy. I love you, you too, very much. for real. <laughs> Thanks. I do. So uh, to kind of close the episode, um, I want to know: Is there a story from Masters Commission <laughs> that you could never tell us until now? Until like it's been. Oh, 15, 16 years. It, it, bro, because it's shit almost happened. 20. Things happen. Almost two decades, bro. Practical yeah. jokes were played, right? I could tell you some stuff that happened that you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us something that we didn't know that is a great story. You got to have, I know you have something. If you don't, and that, you know, that's okay, we'll cut this out. But I bet there's something swimming around in there that you thought, ah, I can never tell anyone this. Well, well I, I feel oh, like. While you're thinking, Matt, I feel like if you were to go to the apartments, and I believe it's apartment what B seven, Ashlyn. Yeah, um, in the above it. <laughs> if you were to go into the attic above it, <laughs> well, there's this giant um, penis costume that nice. uh, a full body penis costume. Now I don't know the origin of the oh penis costume, but I can tell you a story. Um, so before I left, before Interface left for fall tour, I can't remember the year, but it was the year I was their sound guy. I traveled with them seven, I believe. seven or eight. Um, I went around to all the apartment. It was like the first year where like everyone was in apartments, right? I don't think there was a Hope House. Maybe there was a Hope House. I don't know. But like everyone was pretty much in the apartments. Yeah. Um, I went around to all the guys' apartments only. And to say goodbye to them, I would go in and go, hey, guys, we're leaving in the morning, you know, just wanted to come around and, you know, say goodbye. And I would kind of give this monologue about saying goodbye in every apartment I did this. And I slowly took off all my clothes. And I was by the time I was done, I'm standing in the middle of the apartment completely nude. 100% 100% nude <laughs> with a straight face. Oh my God. Didn't laugh. Just, just say, Hey got, you know, I love you. We're going to be gone. It's going to be a long fall tour. You know, we're going to go here. Hey, we're going to see your hometown, you know, and I'm just, my, my stuff is just dangling. I'm just, you know, completely. <laughs> and, and I had That's mixed awesome. reactions, right? Most guys were like, ha ha ha. This is what Ashlyn does. And then other guys, you know, you knew like some were the kind of prude, you know, that wouldn't engage with that. So to, <laughs> To reward me for that, um, when we got back, the night we got back, there was a um, this crazy dance party in my apartment. It was like a surprise. I walked in and it was nice. totally dark and then the <laughs> lights came on and the music came up and there were lights and there were, I can't even describe, I won't even say it. There were lots of things. Um, but this penis, someone in this penis costume was one of them. And so that <laughs> still exists somewhere on that, that property. Awesome. It is in an attic somewhere. Um, whoever discovers that, or if it hasn't already been that, that would be just such a beautiful treat to be like, well, the apartments are still, uh, active <laughs> and, uh, master's oh, yeah, commission they, is still, well, they still have something going on there. Facade. And which is a funny name, by the way, I think it's yes. so funny. F-sod. No, it's, know, facade. I, I, it's a facade. Yeah. Exactly. This, I was like F S O eight D. I was like, like who? Oh, that doesn't pronounce well. I was like, wait, <laughs> who is the 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 dozens of people that did not raise their hand and say, "Hey, you know yeah. that's a word." 
Well, look, that- man, those environments, <laughs> when you have someone who thinks something's a great, if the person at the top thinks something is a great idea, not a lot of people are going to argue with that. Like, yeah. you know, think about the culture sure. that we were in. And if, you know, I don't think Pastor Art would have said, but like, if he would have said, I think this is it, this is what I want it to be. No one's going to be like, bro. <laughs> well, I was already wrong. kind of, I was already kind of the way. black sheep with Pastor Art. I would have spoke up and been like, yo, bro. You weren't you know, a black sheep. I don't oh, know. I was. I was for I sure. Know, with Pastor anyway, Art, Matt, I was. Matt, what is your penis like, costume oh story? Gosh. I want to know what did you, what, what do you know? What penis, penis costume story do you have for us that you can lay on us? Because there's got to be something good. It, it, I'm, I'm afraid that most of my penis costume stories are stories of me overreacting to relatively innocuous behavior. And there's so many of them though, like me overreacting to um, one of them that comes to mind is when we went on a trip to, uh, to Georgia, what, what the heck was that town? There's a town in Georgia that where a lot of the students came from. Oh, um, it's on the tip of my tongue too. Macon, Valdosta, nah. Jessup, almost Jessup. Jessup. Yes, Jessup. Jessup That's it. So yeah, we went. We went there, and I led the trip, um, and and came back. When we came back, we're unloading the 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 trailer, and and I was like, okay. I'm, uh, and they, the the students that were under me in this leadership trip thing, were like, no, 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 no don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Well, we we got this. You don't have to unload. You just just take you know take a beat you're good to go and i was like oh that's a little unusual but then they were a little more forceful about it than i thought that seemed quite natural and i was like oh okay whatever and and it turned out that they had gone out one night and stolen something like 15 20 30 road signs <laughs> from around Jessup. <laughs> and i flipped my absolute freaking gourd over that which i mean sure it's illegal it's bad you should, they shouldn't have done it but also it was like it's kind of funny looking back like they just like rid the whole town of all its road signs <laughs> and i flipped my lid oh man i was so mad i was just so so raging pissed I sat them all down in the gym and, and yelled and lectured and there, there was one guy that thought i was overreacting and i was just like I was like, you will not accuse me of overreacting. I will lash out at you so hard. I'll, I'll um, react over this <laughs> overreaction. <laughs> Matt, were you yep. there that time that I, uh, and this will be my one story. And it's not even that big. I, for some reason thought it was a funny idea. There was this event going on in the KO gym. Uh, and there was like a bunch of booths set up and it was kind of like flea market style. Everyone was kind of selling things. Well, one booth had this, this thing that had like Bibles on it. And it was a little sign that said free, please take one. And then I looked over and I saw the booth from first assembly of God that was, had a bunch of CDs on it. And it was like CDs of dozens of like, uh, like worship CDs and all these things that they were selling for $20 a piece. And I thought it'd be funny if I put the free, please take one on that <laughs> and dropped it on there right before the doors opened and they cleared the shelves, like thousands of CDs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was like thousands and thousands of dollars that I lost <laughs> the church. And pa- I think Pastor called me in and he's like, he's like, so, Dude. It, it came down that this was you. And I was like, 
Oh God. <laughs> Did that actually happen? I was oh, just jo- I was just man. joking around and it was like thousands and thousands of dollars. Is that why you think you're a black sheep on his list? Oh no. I'm pretty no. sure that's not the case. No, like, of the third years I was the black sheep. I mean, like Matt Matt Lou was always invited over to his house and all these oh, people yeah. were always and I never ever was. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, Pastor yeah, definitely he played favorite. Black sheep though. I think like the people that ended up getting kicked out. Oh no, I'm just talking yeah. of, of those in you know lower level leadership. I was definitely the black sheep for sure. Huh. Yeah, but that's okay. I'm good with it now. Um, so thank you, Matt, <laughs> for coming on oh, and speaking. Man. Um, I think I think it's important to say uh, if anyone is is struggling with uh, any mental health issues or. Uh, thoughts of suicide or stress or depression to reach out and uh, please, please, please reach out uh, to a professional. Um, And and Matt, you said there, is it psychology today? Psychology today. And the other thing that I thought would be helpful to mention um, you and you both been open to like people contacting you um, if they need some help. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Um, But the other thing would be suicide hotline. And, um, there's a national suicide hotline available. It's 800-273-8255. There are also like, if you can't, if you look up rain, R I R A I N N dot com, there's, there are hotlines available for, you know, like people that have been experienced sexual abuse. Um, You can Google um, like LGBTQ hotline and, and, and find hotlines that are, that are available for that. Uh, for people that, you know, maybe their sexuality or their gender um, identity orientation, things like that are are maybe interwoven in their, their trauma and their difficulty tightly enough that, that they want something that, that would be specifically for them. Um, but those kind of resources are, are easily available and, and people are ready to help. They're, they're ready to, you know, at those hotlines to give you information on how to get more help too. So um, I think it's important to reiterate that if, if anyone were to reach out to myself or Ashlyn or uh, I mean, it was specifically us two um, because they feel like we are a safe space. We are not professionals. I, <laughs> I will quickly guide you. That conversation would be to help you find professional help. Yeah, it's not like we're going to be like, oh, no. you're, we got this. I got you. No, <laughs> it would be, I've never we're been very aware that. Let me, let me be your therapist. No, like, like, like this is a safe space for us to find the path to professional help. And that's exactly what that's this awesome. would be. Um, and uh, Matt, is there a place that people uh, could contact you if, if, if that was okay with you? As Yes. Um, my probably my email or, or Facebook mbeal.logos at gmail.com. Um, that's my email address. B E A L M B E A L dot L O G O S. Correct. Logos. At Gmail. And I'd, I'd love to hear from people if they have any thoughts or questions and reach out, connect. That's great. I love that stuff. I, I suffer from the lack of community too. Um, in these days for sure. And I was so thrilled when church was finally able to reopen. Uh, you know, that's in a sense, our primary form of, of community right here where we live now. Um, and man, that was tough. Yeah, it really was. Um, (laughs) well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming on, dude. Honestly, this, this conversation is, is, it's been healing for me. Um, and uh, I'm just, I was wondering I'm so, where so we go with it, you know, I, I was even wondering, like, 
okay, are we going to end up doing like a mini therapy session like for Ashley? Well, <laughs> see, I was, see what we can like give an illustration of like what therapy might be like for, for you know, somebody who struggles with some anxiety and panic. Um, no, I'm, just, there, so. I'm really grateful, man. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really grateful for uh, for you to come on. I'm really grateful for you, Ashlyn. I really appreciate you, uh, both of you, for uh, walking through life with me. This has been really great. Me too, I love you guys. Love you guys. Thanks love so much, guys. Matt. Bye, everybody. <laughs>